0: please visit RedemptionOKC.com. Well, we're in this series talking about our vision and mission as a church called... Truth, beauty, and strength, and as we do, um, really, all of it's aimed at, uh, at kind of helping us get downtown in our vision for how are we going to live in the years to come. Uh, but it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't. We don't. Have, we don't wait until we get into our building. Uh, really, home starts now. We're we're called to be these people now. This isn't really new. This is stuff that um, we've we've talked about before in the life of our church. It's just taking a little bit of new focus. So today we get to close it out by talking about strength. Um, and really i am assuming I've got enough time at the end we're going to have time to kind of unpack what this might look like in terms of our our building and and, and what it, <clears throat> what the the move would, would have, how the move would affect this but um, let's let's jump in here today what we're going to see today is if we're going to flourish if we're going to shine as uh, the light of Christ our city we must be strong in humble service see, if people are going to listen to the truth of the gospel that we want to share with them they're going to have to be convinced of uh, the the beauty of christ like character and, and the beauty of Christ-like service. They need to see uh, Christ's love in action before they trust Christ's love for themselves. And so as we begin to think about this, let me just tell you a story. I, I remember years ago, I had a guy who was a 72-year-old man that had some interaction through an event with some people at our church, and he came to me and he asked, and he said, look, I don't believe anything you believe, but I just I don't have men like this in my life would it be okay if I hung out with you guys if I don't believe anything that you believe? And I said, yeah, man, that's fine. You come hang out with us as long as you want. And he came back later and he said, my wife said I shouldn't be here. She said, you're gonna want my money. And I assured him and said, dude, you can hang out as long as you want. You never have to give a dime. It'll be just fine. And so he began to hang out with us. He began to interact with us. He showed up, got to know some of us. And do you know, it was about a year later, I got to baptize that man. And here's what happened in that man's life. He needed to see what Christ in the flesh looked like. He needed to see, do we love him? He needed to see, is this for real? He wanted to see, does this work? And then he said, okay, I'm going to take a step of faith and I'll trust him. But those two things went hand in hand together. He needed to see beauty of character. He needed to see strength of service. Then he could trust the truth. And so th- sometimes in life, those things go together. So we're going to jump in and look at that today. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Um, New Testament begins with four books that we call the Gospels, which means good news. It's the good news about Jesus. And those four books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to be in the third one of those, Luke. and uh, So the third book of your New Testament, we're going to be in chapter 10 today. We're going to look at a parable called the Good Samaritan. And this, uh, this parable takes three words, really tied together by a couple words. One is, the verb means to do, and it's used three times. And one's a noun that's neighbor, and that's used three times as well. And the whole thing, really, that kind of gives you the theme of what we're going to look at is, what does it mean to do good to your neighbor? That's what Jesus is going to ultimately teach about in this verse. And it's a very simple statement, but it's a parable. It's a story that Jesus is going to tell. And it's an example parable, meaning it's a parable that's intended to be an example to us of how we are to live. And so as we jump in there, Luke chapter 10, we're going to begin in verse 25. And I'm just going to read to start this off. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, man, don't lawyers love to put you to the test? (laughs) And I just start right there. I laugh every time. I think it's kind of funny. And a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and in your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the lawyer, deciding to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So you get this scenario, this lawyer that stood up to put Jesus to the test. And um, you guys have probably got lawyer jokes going through your head, don't you? You got, you got a good one. You heard one about the lawyer that, uh, that, that dies and goes to heaven. And he appears before St. Peter and says, there must be some mistake. I'm not old enough to die. And, and St. Peter says, well, how old do you think you are? He said, well, I'm only I'm only 55 he says, well, not according to our records. I said, well, what do you mean? He says, according to our records, you're, you're 82 years old. And the lawyer said, well, how did you get that? And he said, well, we added up your time cards. <laughs> all right. Wait for it. All right. Now, this isn't that kind of a lawyer. This is a, a religious lawyer who's there to argue and fight over all kinds of stuff. And is a religious scholar. And he stands up and he confronts Jesus and tries to put him to the test. And uh, as he does, he says, what must I do to, to share in the resurrection life? In the end, and Jesus begins to explain to the man what it looks like for him to, uh, to, to or, or actually he's going to turn it back on the man and ask him a question. And so Jesus, being a, a wise person, knows this guy's coming at him. And so he just turns it back. This guy asks him a question. He's like, well, let me ask you a question. What does it say in the Old Testament? And so like a good, anyone that argues, well, he finds common ground with this guy. This is a, a religious scholar who was a, a legal scholar of the Old Testament law. And so this is his specialty. And so Jesus turns back and goes, hey, you're the, you're the expert here. You tell me, what does it say in the law? How do you read it? personally?" And so he kind of is creating some rapport with the guy. And the guy quotes from Deuteronomy 6. He quotes a a passage or or an area that we oftentimes refer to as the Shema. And and it's where it talks about the great commandment. And it says that that we're to love God with our whole person, uh, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything that we are is meant to love the Lord. And it says, and then also to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the surprising thing that we see in the Bible, isn't it? See, it's not surprising that, that a Bible, that a religious document would tell you to love God. Like, that's, that's not a shock to any of us. You would anticipate that. You would expect it. What's surprising about the Bible in the Old Testament and then Jesus repeats it in the New Testament is that it says when you love God, you should also love your neighbor exactly as, as much as you love yourself. And so just as you love the Lord, it ought to overflow in love for other people. Now, this is what's amazing is that devotion to God Biblically, is expressed in devotion to other people. That one of the ways we demonstrate we truly love God is by truly loving those around us. And that feels harder, doesn't it? It's easier for me to love the idea of God. It's easier for me to love an idea of God that breathes life into me and gives me life. It's harder for me to love, to, to love the dude that cuts me off in traffic. It's harder for me to love the guy that when you're trying to do the right thing in this convoluted, confusing world these days, when you go to the grocery store and you get in line and you're like, I should distance. And you're like, I guess I should stay back. And then someone just comes and gets in front of you and goes right, and you're just like, really? Like, it's harder for me to love that person. It's harder for me to love the people that do really dumb things in our world. Um, Sometimes I'm one of them, but those don't bother me nearly as much as the dumb stuff other people do. And so you just, it's hard sometimes to love those around us, but it seems easier to love God. But what the Bible says is if we love God, that always is connected to our love of other people. Those two go together. You don't get to pick and choose. They, they're, they're related to one another. And so here uh, the lawyer is desiring, it says to justify himself. Um, isn't that interesting that, that a lawyer would want to defend himself. He's like, Jesus says something. He's like, objection. You know, like, I'd like to issue a complaint to this. And who who do you say is my neighbor? And uh, what we need to understand is that that when Jesus commands us to love our neighbor, it's not just some legalistic thing. And it's connected here with this idea of eternal life. So I don't want you to get the idea that if you love everyone well enough, you get to go to heaven, that's not what it's trying to say. What it's saying is that if you've truly trusted the Lord, if you truly believe in him and trust his love for you, it's gonna naturally overflow in your desire to love someone else. And so here in this case, the lawyer begins and looks at Jesus and makes this objection and says, well, and who is my neighbor? See, sometimes the Jewish law, they created kind of loopholes where it's like, you only have to love the people that are also practicing Jews. You only have to love the people that that are actually adhering to the law and doing the things we are. The people that have rejected that, you don't have to love them the same way. And so it creates kind of some loopholes or some different ways of doing it. And the lawyer's trying to soften the command to love others saying, well, surely there's restrictions on I don't have to love the sinner people, right? Like, surely there's, a, there's an exception. Like, if you get the fine print, like if you got to the, the really small print in the contract, surely there's an exception or an exclusion of some of the people I don't have to love. But Jesus is going to answer him with a story. And friends, it is easy to pick on the lawyer, isn't it? Uh, because it's easy to see how foolish he looks next to Jesus. But the reality is all of us are looking for loopholes to get out of loving people. Uh, there's days when I want to get out, I'm looking for loopholes to get out of loving the people that I really care about, like my family, right? Like, I'm like, surely I should get a pass from caring for my kids today, right? Sorry, Lord. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he's like, it's like, don't go there, you know, right? It's like, ooh, okay, no. Um, but it, it can be hard to do that. And the lawyer's saying, I don't want to love unlovely people. And Jesus is gonna tell him a story that's gonna push on him. And I think it pushes on us because the the fact is no human is ignorable. There are no non-neighbors in your life. There are no group of people that's a subspecies that we get to overlook. The, The Bible starts off and says that all people were made in the image of God, which means that if we love God, then all the people that are reflectors of God in the world we ought to love them too. That ought to be what's natural. What ought to come naturally to us. And so as we think about this, let's look at the parable that Jesus tells starting in verse 30. Now, uh, where was I? Verse 30, Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now, what we see in this parable is even in the layout, Jesus is beginning to build his argument. And so as Jesus starts to uh, unpack this story and tell this story, you notice there's the first two people that are there. And the negative examples are a priest and a Levite. So the the pinnacle of religiosity in their world. uh, And these are the first two examples that Jesus gives. And the ones that most would think would be the good citizens, the good examples. And yet Jesus uses them as bad examples of what not to do. And so Jesus is already kind of stepping on toes as he gets in there. And this parable is meant to be confrontational, especially for a religious lawyer. And so Jesus is telling him that, uh, that, that no one is allowed to shirk from the responsibility to love the one in front of them. And so Jesus begins to do this. You notice in verse 30, he starts off and he talks about, what do we know about the man that's been injured? We know literally nothing. He just says, a certain man, just a random dude because the point is not about who he is or what race he is or what he looks like or what his lifestyle is or anything about the man. Jesus skips over all of that and just says, "A man." Because what we're meant to see is how the three people respond to the man. Whoever the man is, how do we respond to the people that we come across? And we're going to look and Jesus is gonna point out three different people and we see these three different people and their responses to encountering this man and what they do. And that's where Jesus is going to make his point. Now, this road that Jesus is talking about is has uh, a road for being particularly dangerous. It's a 17-mile road uh, that's a stretch that's full. It's kind of a desert area full with lots of caves where robbers and, and bandits would hide. Uh, it actually goes from, I think, 20 from 2,600 uh, feet above sea level to 825 feet below sea level. Uh, 400 years later, historians are still, actually, in, in history books, they still talk about this road as being a particularly dangerous place. And so it's a place that was a strong thoroughfare for travel, especially for merchants. And so as they're going back and forth on this road, uh, this man is jumped by multiple men. He's beaten, robbed, stripped, and left for dead. Uh, The word there literally means he's half dead. means he's he's hanging on to life, just barely hanging on. And then you get this sense uh, where Jesus is telling the story. And we've heard it before, but imagine hearing it for the first time in that setting. And Jesus goes, by chance, a priest is passing by. And if you're hearing the story, you're like, oh, thank goodness. Someone that's gonna help him is gonna be here. And then it has kind of a tongue-in-cheek word. It says, but the priest seeing the man passed by on the opposite side of the road. When it says the word for opposite is actually the against side of the road. So it's almost like he went against the man. So he sees the man, he goes to the opposite side against doing what's right for the man and goes around him. Then he gets to a Levite. A Levite is uh, similar, he's another guy who practices in the temple, but but you know maybe he's not as esoteric as a priest. Like this guy's more of a hands-on dude that does a lot of more of the menial stuff in the deal. So maybe he'll get his hands dirty and help this guy, right? So by chance, another religious guy comes by, and this guy's a Levite that's there. And as he does, um, he sees him and uses the exact same words. Jesus says, likewise, he passes by on the against side of the road as well. He does the same thing. Instead of help going towards the man, he goes against the man and wanders around him and crosses the other side of the road to get Um, away from him now there's several speculations about why they did not want to help him and why they chose not to to engage the situation one is uh, some people said well they didn't want to be ritually unclean and so they they didn't want to get themselves dirty so they couldn't practice their job in the temple problem is there's actually loop there there's actually places in the law where it, it permits and allows for that So that's actually not a valid option for them to have skipped out on. Uh, It may have been that they thought, well, this guy surely is a sinful guy. That guy would allow something like this to fall upon him. And so I really don't want anything to do with him. Maybe they just didn't want to get their hands dirty. Uh, Maybe they didn't want to get get robbed themselves. They're thinking, well, if bandits were here to rob this guy, they're probably still watching. And if I stopped to help him, maybe I'm putting myself at risk. Maybe maybe they felt vulnerable. Uh, Maybe they just were self-important. They had really important stuff on their calendar. And they looked at their day timer like, God, I don't know how this, I don't know where this fits in. And so they run on to the next thing and, and go on about their business. Um, we don't really know. And Jesus doesn't address it because I don't think it matters. Because in the context of what Jesus is saying, it honestly doesn't matter what these guys' motive was. Jesus uh, is just saying, all that matters is that you're called to help. So, verse thirty-two. What do we see? Another man is coming. Well, surely someone's here is finally going to help this poor guy as he's bleeding out, right? Um, th- this next guy that comes, and Jesus has kind of built the drama of the story. Now, if you're the lawyer, who are you thinking the third guy is? Uh, because, you know, lawyers are always thinking ahead. So if you're hearing Jesus tell this story and kind of confronting you, you're like, oh, where's he going with this story? And begins to think about that. So it's like, well, he took out the, the high, highest religious office. He took out the next religious office. I bet the good guy is going to be like a layman. Like, not a religious guy. Jesus has got to be an anti-establishment. Like, he just is anti-institutional religion. Jesus is going to say, well, none of those priests, you know, guys that are up in an ivory tower are any good, but we're just going to get an everyday guy, and he's going to be the one, right? So that's probably where the lawyer's thinking Jesus is going to go, is that he'll make an everyday hero out of this. But Jesus takes it even a step further than that. In verse 33, Jesus says, but a Samaritan. Now, you may not That may not affect you a whole lot, but Jesus is stepping on serious toes here. To the Israelites, the Samaritans were among the least respected people on earth. They were considered half-breeds. They were considered kind of backwards. They were were considered people that merged with different things and so watered down the truth. And uh, they, they were people that culturally and racially and religiously were looked down upon by the Israelites. And so Jesus, when he comes and says, but a Samaritan, had compassion and acted as a good neighbor to this man, that that lawyer's beginning to bristle, right? He's like, dude, how dare you say a Samaritan when you get to that point? But you notice, yeah, there was even a saying in, in Israel that if you were to eat a meal with a Samaritan, you might as well just eat, eat unclean pork because you're gonna be contaminated just by being near him, just like you would if you violated the law. So this is where that hatred began to... to To infiltrate into Israel. And Jesus is pushing back hard against that. And so Jesus, in his story, says, What what does he say about the Samaritan? It says, When the Samaritan saw the injured man, what's it say? He had compassion. And then he went towards him. Do you know when the Lord in, in Exodus revealed himself to Moses? And, and gave his name and described what he's like. When Moses was Moses, had asked, what, uh, "What, what should I tell the people? Or who should I tell the people sent me? Or what am I like?" And God gave his name. And God would repeat it later. And when God did, the first thing God said was, "The Lord, the Lord, a God who is compassionate." This man, when we, when he acted with compassion, was actually displaying an attribute of God in the way in which he acted. And so he looked and he had compassion on the man and he moved towards the man. He was able to see a need and act to meet it. He acted in love and went towards him. Um, it wasn't the priest or the Levite who act, acted with mercy, but this racial outcast, he's the one who did the, did the right thing. Uh, friends, when we act in compassion, we're showing others what God is like. The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and compassionate. And when we act with compassion, we do the same thing. Now, in Jesus' parable, the Samaritan was probably a traveling businessman. Uh, They had a lot of business, and they would go back and forth. And this was a a thoroughfare. And so it was probably a guy who was was on a business trip. He probably had some things he needed for this trip to go with him. He probably had some money and other things. But he also probably had a very busy schedule and things that he had to be about and had to do. So this was a, a strong interruption for him. And yet his day is interrupted by love. So look, look, with, uh, look at the text and just what he does for the man. First, he moves towards the man. Then he binds up his wounds. Likely, he had to rip up some of his own clothes in order to bind up the man's wounds and try to do that. Probably his undergarments or, uh, or his head covering that kept him from the sun, he probably would have taken that and used that to bind up this man's wounds. Then he said he anoints his cuts with oil and wine. Oil was to soothe the wound. Wine was to disinfect it. And so it was gonna help clean this guy's wounds. Uh, those were things that were of. Com- Comfort for him. Uh, imagine, uh, you know, like many businessmen on a traveling long day, uh, those were probably there for him when he got to the end of his business trip to enjoy and refresh himself. But he sacrificed and gave those things to care for this man. Um, and he loads, uh, goes on and loads the, the man on his own donkey, which means he probably had to walk the rest of the way on this journey. Uh, he takes him to an inn to care for him. This is probably uh, the, just the term that's used, was probably not a low class place. It was probably a little bit of a nicer place because he was trying to make sure this guy got good care. And so he took him to a little bit of a, a nicer inn. And it says innkeepers were, um, at that day, were not known to, to care for people, so he paid up front and he promises to pay more later. In fact, the, the phrase that it uses there is almost this kind of intense contractional deal where he's, it's like he's looking at the innkeeper and he's like, dude, here's the deal. Don't you dare make this guy pay. I will pay it. If anything is owed, I will repay it. You don't charge him anything. I got it, okay? So he's making this really clear to this innkeeper. I'm gonna cover everything that's owed. Friends, do you see what compassion looks like in action? He notices someone he allows himself to be interrupted. He moves towards the man. And he does what needs to be done to care well for this man at a sacrifice to himself. And Jesus chooses the Samaritan to be the model of, um, of what, what it is we're to do. So Jesus finishes his story. And you notice what he does. He turns to the man and he says, So, brother, which of these three do you think proved to be a man to the one who fell among the robbers? or a neighbor to the, one, the man who fell among the robbers? That word proved, Um, could also say to became. Which one became a a a neighbor to the one who fell among the robbers? And that's a that's an important thing for us, I think, to understand is that that, that this is actually a choice that you that you make. You have to prove your love. You, You you become someone who cares for others. It's not something that comes naturally to anyone, but this guy proved it to be true. You notice what the lawyer says in answer to the question, Jesus says, Which one proved to be a neighbor? How does he answer? He says, "The man who showed mercy." See so he understands the point of the story. He's a smart man, right? You notice what he didn't say? He didn't say, "Well, the Samaritan." Because even though he recognizes this is the guy who, who showed mercy, he's still prejudiced. He's still holding on to his bitterness. He can't say, "Well, it was the Samaritan guy that does it." So he just says, "Well, the one, the guy who showed mercy, that's the one you want Jesus. That's the one but he can't, he can't get over the hump yet. So Jesus pushes back on him a little bit more and says, you go and do likewise. You go be like that Samaritan. And so Jesus is calling to, uh, to obedience in a different way and, and really pressing in on, on him. And you remember Jesus' statement earlier, he says, do this and you will live. What he means is, do this and you'll flourish. Do this and you'll thrive. Do this and you'll, have, you'll, you'll experience what true life is really all about. That when you live in this way, you actually experience more of life, not less. When you sacrifice of yourself, it actually doesn't cost you life, it actually gives you more life. It actually blesses you in a way. It's why Jesus says it's better to give than to receive. That that, that there's blessing that comes. and So it's not in in an exchange thing, like I'm gonna do something and God's gonna give me health, wealth and prosperity. No, it's not what he's talking about. He's saying you're gonna enjoy life as God intended it and you're gonna walk under his care and his goodness. in in relationship with him when you live in this way. Friends, compassion, love, kindness, they make one a neighbor. It's not where a person lives. It's not where they come from. um, But it's the one who moves towards the neighbor that becomes a neighbor to someone else. So whenever you think about this, where do we go um, with this text? Well, when we love God enough, we love people that loving people is an overflow of our love for God, that when we're rightly related vertically to the Lord, that always funnels out horizontally in in our love and our care for other people. And it's why our mission statement says we want to make authentic disciples of Jesus who live for the glory of God and the good of our world, because those two always go together. That we're always connecting to loving the Lord and then love our neighbor as ourselves. And uh, Daryl Bach says this about this text. He says, love for God expresses itself in, in a life that is sensitive to others. This, combination of, this is the combination of how life is to be pursued and found. The Samaritan cared for the person he had never seen without asking questions. The issue is not who we may or may not serve, but serving wherever need exists. We are not to seek to limit who our neighbors might be. Rather, we're to be a neighbor to those whose needs we might meet. That's the heart, I think, of what Jesus is saying in this text. And I know some of you are probably thinking, well, sure. Everyone wants to, you know, when you want to press in on us on this issue, you go to the Good Samaritan. But that's like the one place the Bible talks about this, right? Maybe not. Let me me just, I'm just going to, this is going to be painful. I'm just going to tell you, but I just want to make sure that like we Beat this horse to death. Like that you don't, you don't think that's possible. So I'm going to just read through some verses really fast, rapid fire. And I just want you to kind of take these in and just go, okay, this seems like it's a big deal in the New Testament. Um, so let me just go with these. Mark 10:45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 5. Let your light shine before them, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. John 13. Uh, Wash one another's feet, for I have given you this example that you may do just as I have done. Luke 6, uh, the things you wish others would do for you, you go do those things for them. Uh, Jesus continues, Luke 6, he says, love your enemies and do good. Acts 20, help the weak. Remember the words of Jesus, how he himself said it's blessed, more blessed to give than to receive. Romans 12, overcome evil with good. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And for by, by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not ever be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, Galatians 6, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Ephesians 2, we are saved by grace through faith. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 2 Thessalonians, do not grow weary in doing good. 1 Timothy, be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for yourselves as a good foundation of the future so that you may take hold of that which is truly life. Be rich in good works. Be careful to devote themselves to good works, Titus says. Titus goes on and says uh, that our our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus 3, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Do you think this kind of matters? If you look at the Bible, it's throughout this whole book. It's sprinkled through the whole thing. Uh, one of my favorite verses, One, if you need a verse to memorize for a project or anything, just remember this one. There's a verse in the Bible that just says, do good. That's it. Like, that's the whole command. And you're like, well, but what is exactly do you mean by that? You know, it's like, like whatever, whatever step you're, you're taking the next step, just do good in that moment. Like that's what it means. Just look around and go, what do I do that's good right now? And go do that. That's what we're called to be about. Uh, friends, we're we're called to stir one another up to love and good works. To encourage one another. To constantly be going like, "Man, let's keep going. Don't give in. Let's go. Don't don't repay hate with hate. Repay hate with love. Overcome evil with good." In a world that's divided, in a world that's angry, in a world that's bitter, in a world that's frustrated, in a world that's hurt, What does it look like just to do good time and time again, to be present in the moment, to to look and not go against someone, but to go towards someone and say, how do I help in this situation? That's what we're called to do. Sometimes you need to do that with your spouse, by the way. Sometimes you need to do that with one of your kids. Sometimes you need to do that with a coworker. Sometimes you need to do that um, with someone you've never met. But whatever the scenario is, we're called to do good. So how does this teaching affect you and me? Let me just give you seven, and I'm going to go really quick through here. Um, seven ways I think this affects us. It challenges a mindset of convenience or passivity. Um, and so it constantly is calling us to humbly serve wherever we can. And so life isn't about just doing the convenient thing or the passive thing, but we're called to go towards people at times. It demonstrates an outward focus and awareness of others. That It allows us to recognize that you're not the center of the universe. And I know we all know that, but there's, there's a fact that we, we have to notice those around us and it helps us be focused elsewhere. It breaks down harmful stereotypes and fear. When we're called to be neighbors to those who are not like us, it breaks down stereotypes and causes us to build rapport and connection with people who maybe think differently, act differently, look differently than we do. It models for us how to engage our community in a positive way how do we engage those around us and not just retreat into a holy huddle and not just retreat into a self-protective armor, but to stay connected to those around us? It, it challenges us and models for us how to engage our community. It affirms that Christ-like character and humble service are spiritual. Because sometimes in circles that are Bible-believing circles, we get this idea that, that truth and theology are the only things that are spiritual. And you notice we, we say with this, uh, this series, the first thing we talked about was truth. It's truth, beauty, and strength. We're not ever going to punt truth. We're going to hold truth. But truth needs to be accompanied with beauty and strength. They go together. And so when we think about that, it's important to say that, uh, that, that character and humble service are also spiritual. When you, when you do good to someone else, when you love for them, when you care for a physical need, that's a spiritual act of worship that's, a, that's important as well. It releases a new kind of thinking about how to live a deep, meaningful life. When you see everyone you encounter as an opportunity for you to be a good neighbor to someone else and to live out the commandment of loving God and loving others, then it releases a new way of of viewing things. It also shows us how to build trust and goodwill in our community. shows us how it is that we can earn the right to speak truth to people. So friends, here's why we talk about truth, beauty, and strength. In a world that doesn't believe the idea of truth, we need all three. We, we, we can't go to a world that's denied objective truth and just scream, mm-hmm. sc- scream truth, truth, truth. Uh, it's falling on deaf ears. We, we, need, to, we need to go and to, to practice the beauty of Christlike character and the beauty of Christlike service on the way to sharing truth with, with others. Uh, we, we need these three, like a three, three-legged stool. If you take any one of those out, the thing falls down. We need all three aspects to be present. Truth um, offered from lives that don't act like Jesus and serve like Jesus always feels like condemnation. And truth offered without character is hypocrisy. Truth offered without service is empty. But truth offered with character and service is compelling. And I think that's what the scriptures call us to do. is like, it is that we need to present the truth in love, but we also need to do it from lives that are seeking to walk with Jesus. Oh, I'm running out of time. Can I just tell you one of the things that I'm excited about on downtown property is that I think it allows us to live this out in a really tangible way. We're in the heart of our city. We're, we're right in the middle. And so people from all over can come in and find us there. But we're going to be in the midst of life with, with, with thousands of people to live within just a couple blocks of us. We're going to have people that, that wander out of the bars past our place and may stumble in. Like you never know what, who God's going to bring in our doors in a space like that. We're going to be in close proximity to people of downtown. Um, we're going to be able to practice a to be a life-giving presence in that community, but also to invite people from all areas of our, of, our, of our region to come meet with us there and to experience what the presence of Christ looks like and feels like. Uh, we're going to get to build partnerships with other groups and other organizations and other things that we want to be bridge builders uh, because tr- trust ultimately travels best across bridges of relationship. So we want to be people that are, that are in partnership with others and continually release you to go make a difference through other organizations in our city that we don't need our name on, but just because we want to be a blessing to our city. And we want to be people of purpose. And people of purpose wander each day. And as they go down the road, they're looking for places to display truth, beauty, and strength. And their life is full of meaning. And so that's what when we say, we want to help you wake up to deep, meaningful life, that's what it's about. It's ultimately, we get to live this out in the midst of our city. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would make us people of truth, people of beauty, people of strength. Father, I pray that you make us people of influence in our city, that we would shine brightly for Christ. Um, that people might, might look at us and glorify you. Father, it's all for you. You are a good father. Your love is evident to us in the fact that you sent your only begotten Son to die for us, that we might have eternal life. Father, help us to live in light of that truth in all we do. Amen.